and welcome to episode 19 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. This week's guest is Stuart Lau, Europe correspondent for the South China Morning Post, based in Brussels, Belgium. I met Stuart when I was in Madrid in December for two weeks covering the United Nations Climate Conference, known as COP25. I was meeting an old friend, a human rights activist who was in China until he got arrested and kicked out, at an Irish pub, where better when you're in Spain, and he invited along Stuart. Despite it being a school night, the pub led to a big paella dinner, more drinks, and ultimately drinking wine without any labels on it, left behind by the friend's landlord in his basement until two or three in the morning. Never mind the fact that I had to be covering the Brazilian environment minister at 9 a.m. sharp the next day and had a packed day that included an interview lined up with the mines and energy minister after that. Everything turned out well. You'd be surprised what a little adrenaline can do. But from then on, Stuart and I aligned in our mutual mission to stake out the Chinese booth and try to speak to China's lead climate negotiator at the conference. The Chinese, as you may know, are notoriously closed off to the media. We sat outside the booth for more than an hour, and finally the Chinese official walks out and we rush up to him and try to ask questions. The diplomat just starts going faster, and one of his aides decides to pull that basketball move where you get in front of someone and plant their feet, so I run right into him. So we're dancing around these bodyguards, but we get two decent quotes in about 60 seconds as well as a fresh reminder of the things I used to deal with back when I lived in Beijing. I was impressed by Stewart's ability to show up to a giant event like COP25 as the sole correspondent from his publication and zero in on a couple of stories of special interest to South China Morning Post readers. You'll hear us talk about something I'll just refer to as his big think piece about the conference, which he was working on then but only got published this month, a couple of months after the close of the conference. We didn't say or know the name yet when I did this interview, so I'll post links to it in the episode description, as well as to some books he recommends whose names he can't recall. The think piece is about China's shifting role on climate change, and it really holds up despite the time that has passed. Stewart's ability to tell a story really knows no bounds, as you'll see in this interview. Even to questions like what journalists he admires, he injects his answer with a narrative. I feel like as he tells his own story, he also weaves in the story of Hong Kong seamlessly. Even for those who know nothing about the place, I think they'll come out of this with some sense of Hong Kong, where he's from, and where the South China Morning Post is based. That's it. Please enjoy my conversation with Stuart Lau, Europe correspondent for the South China Morning Post. First of all, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. If you could just tell me a little bit about where you are, what time it is, maybe what the past week or so of work has been like. Um, sure. My name's Stuart Lau, so I'm currently Europe correspondent for the South China Morning Post, which is a newspaper headquartered in Hong Kong in English and has been in existence for God knows how many years, more than a century. And so... I am currently at home, so it's been a very stormy few days in Belgium, and I just came back from Hong Kong not too long ago for Lunar New Year, which also coincided with a bit of coronavirus. So it's a quiet few days in Belgium compared to my work trip in Hong Kong. What have I been doing in the last few days? I've been following, well, the coronavirus as well, covering, for example, Germany has been repatriating the nationals from Wuhan, the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak, and also 
the UK government's decision today to upgrade the awareness of the virus to something of an imminent sort of emergency status. So, yep, I'm basically following this kind of story. But next week is going to be a little bit different because I'll be going to Germany to cover the Munich Security Conference. And so lots of not just security issues, but also domestic German politics, because it's been a few days with crazy political changes in Germany. So that's a totally different story. But yeah, so my current work is a bit in a sort of mess following different stories, depending on what's coming along. Because if anything happens in Europe, are you the guy who has to jump on it? Or are there other correspondents around Europe? No, I'm the only one. So traditionally, we're not that focused on Europe, maybe slightly more so before the handover when Hong Kong was still a British colony. So we had some correspondence in London, I presume, but not really since then. We've only had stringers working in different parts of Europe for us before I got this position to be a staff correspondent. And so, yeah, in terms of Europe, I'm the only one. For me, it's about chasing stories that would be of interest to our Hong Kong, Asia Pacific, Chinese readers. So it would mean stories like cybersecurity issues, 5G for the time being, and then some geopolitical stories, and also big issues such as Brexit and the new European Commission leadership, for example. So lots of different things, but I try to focus on things. Things that Chinese policymakers or academics or ordinary readers would be interested to read about. And then we usually start way, way back at the beginning. So if you could tell me a little bit about where you were born, how you were raised, and maybe a little bit about life growing up. So I was born in Hong Kong to a, I would say, middle-class family. So my father, he's actually an immigrant from mainland China, and my mother was born in Hong Kong herself. So my father is well, he has been quite a, an inspirational figure for me, I guess. So he was born into a very humble background. I mean, he was born in a village in quite difficult situations in Guangdong province, which is the neighboring province from Hong Kong. And so he basically left mainland China during the Cultural Revolution when his parents were purged for being like landowners. And so he moved to Hong Kong when he was about 20 years old, 25 years old. And mm -hmm. so he made a living of his own when he moved to Hong Kong. And then he met my mother. So they gave birth to me and my little sister. And so I would say we were in a middle class family, but I was always taught to be frugal, to not really spending money as much as we want, but we were always taught to save up and to look out for bigger opportunities whenever there are and to always have that mentality of chasing for things or to make bigger dreams whenever possible, wherever possible. And I would say I, I forgot since when I decided to be a journalist, actually, but I've always got this very, mm -hmm. very good friend of mine. Her name is Michelle, and we went to the same high school. And then one of those classroom cliches, you know, the teacher would ask us, what would you like to become when you grow up? What kind of career dream do you have? And Michelle would always be the person to answer, oh, I want to be a journalist. And so, you know, because most of the students would say things like policeman or fireman or yeah. banker, that sort of stupid answers, because we don't actually have any live experience. So we just say things that 
relate most to us. But she was the only person to say, "I want to be a journalist," and so I found it so surprising or so new in a sense. And then it must be 2003 when Hong Kong was experiencing the first wave of protests at that time. So we had SARS outbreak, and then we had a terrible property market performance, and people were so angry with the government at that time. The first post handover government after the British left. I mean, by today's standards, that was nothing. It was like a half million turnout, but at that time, it was a big turnout because. People were not very politically active at that point. The last protest before that was probably way before that, 1989, the Tiananmen Square crackdown. And then 2003 was like, oh, people were angry and people went out to the streets for the first time in like 15 years. And then my father went and he actually took me to join him. I mean, I was relatively young at that point, 15 or 16, so I was more like a witness about what people were doing on the streets. And then it was the first time that I actually saw journalists doing live. Coverage on the streets, you know, among the crowd, and、mm-hmm. you know, all the well-known Hong Kong journalists standing amid the crowd, and I actually saw them face to face for the first time because before that I could only see them on the television, and it was the first time that I met a journalist in real person, and so it. Drew me closer to journalism in one sense, and of course, after that, I went to uni. And my parents asked me, "What would you like to do?" I was like, "No, I don't have any idea." So I ended up with a law degree, actually, because I was thinking, "Okay, maybe I do law, then I could sort of figure out what to do afterwards." Because it's like the sort of degree that would open me up to different opportunities afterwards.、Mm-hmm. And so I did a three years degree in law, and then I was quite convinced early on that I didn't want to be a lawyer. I did an internship in the high court. And I dealt with lawyers, and then a judge who was my mentor. And yeah, I, I was a bit bored with the sort of paperwork, with all the procedural stuff. So I was like, okay, maybe I could consider being a journalist because I was interested in politics. I was interested in the constitutional matters that I dealt with in my law degree, and I like writing. So I was like, yeah, I'll give it a try. And so after I finished my undergrad, I did a master's for one year in journalism to learn the basics to net. Work a little bit with other journalists, and then I joined the South China Morning Post. I was lucky and got a job there after graduation. So that's the beginning of my journalism career. So up until that master's program, had you done any journalism? Are there many opportunities to do like student journalism in Hong Kong, or is that not much of a thing?、Mm, not. Really, to be honest, because well, the law degree to start with was a very tough one. So even if I wanted to do some sort of student journalism work, it would be extremely difficult given the time and the pressure. So the short answer is no. I didn't really have any experience in that sense. I did try to. Take a few courses in journalism alongside my law degree. So I think I did some theory courses, like I mean the most useless kind of courses, like <laughs> theory of communications. That's sort of BS, and I was lucky I didn't get so disillusioned by that point. <laughs> But no, I mean I didn't really do any real life journalism before that. So. Yeah, it's definitely new to me when I first joined the newspaper. Wow! And I assume your father must be in business somehow, or、uh, yeah, nothing connected to writing. No, no, not really. So he was a small businessman dealing with shoe trading. So what he did was he would. Buy shoes from mainland China, mainland Chinese factories, and then who would sort of repackage them and then sell it to different retailers in Hong Kong. That's what he did. 
Gotcha. What did your mom do out of curiosity? Um, she used to be an accounting clerk, and so she was working for a few different companies. So at one point before I was born, I think she was working in a taxi license company, working as an accounting clerk. And then after she gave birth to me and then my sister, she well, she took a few years leave, and then she. Went back to work in a Scandinavian shipping company, actually working also as an accounting clerk. And sister too, nothing related to journalism writing. No, I mean she is more influenced by my mother than by me, so she is also an accountant, actually. What was your master's program like in Hong Kong? It was a very tense course because it only lasted well less than a year, maybe ten months. To two semesters. So I think in the first semester, we learned basic reporting and writing. So I got a lecturer who used to work for Time magazine. And so he was probably the person who taught me the most about how to write a good article, how to be a good reporter. And I mean, I forgot most of what I learned in the course. But one thing that I always took very deeply with me was the way he taught us how to write a lead for the Any article. So, for example, there was one occasion he asked all of us to do some real reporting. So at that time, the Chinese Army, the People's Liberation Army, was having a visit on the campus of the University of Hong Kong, where I was doing my course. It was quite a rare appearance because, in the context of Hong Kong, usually the People's Liberation Army they would be quite obscure. You wouldn't really see them. They would always be inside the barracks, and they don't want to be too publicly accessible, or they want to keep that distance with Hong Kong people. They don't want to scare. People they want to keep the one country two systems in place, so it was quite a rare occurrence for them to be visiting an academic institution. And so my lecturer was like, "Okay, guys, you have the army visiting the campus. Just go and talk to them, see what kind of stories you could find." And so I went and I talked to the army people, and I also talked to the students who interacted with them. And then I came back and I started writing the article. And so I forgot what I wrote, but I wrote something. Maybe slightly critical of what they said or what they did on campus, and then the lecturer was very impressed because he gave me a very high mark for what I wrote, and then he actually told me, you know what, Stuart, most of your classmates they would write a piece that sounds more like a PR sort of press release than news article. They only told a story about what they did on campus or what they said or how they interacted with the students, but not really looking at it from a very critical perspective. And so I was like, ah, interesting. Because before that point, I was not quite aware of the distinction between journalism and PR-style journalism, if you like. And so I think from that point onwards, I developed a mindset that journalism is. Supposed to be critical. As journalists, we are supposed to be as critical as possible. And then a lot of friends around me, whenever I tell them I work as a journalist, they would actually ask me, "Oh, but why are journalists always so critical? Why are you guys always so pessimistic? Always so negative about things around us?" And I was like, "Eh, but that's what we're supposed to do." But anyway, coming back to the course, so reporting and editing and a little bit of video journalism, and that's an interesting part because I did try to do some video journalism, but I just Realized、mm-hmm. 
how little I enjoyed it. And I guess it was from that cause that I decided I would rather not be working in a TV station or public broadcaster and that sort of thing. And I, I realized how much more I prefer writing to video. And so I decided not to become a video journalist from that experience. Why didn't you like it so much, do you think? There's a lot of limitation about what video journalism could deliver. So I did an internship with a TV station as part of the coursework. So I was working on a documentary project about guide dogs. And so I followed families who were, what's the word? So they were training guide dogs, basically. So I followed them for a year to see what they did, how they trained guide dogs before those guide dogs could help visually impaired people. And there is a lot of limitation about, for example, what kind of quotes you can get from people and then what kind of footage you could get. And I mean, a lot of people also don't want to show on camera. And then you have all the editing considerations whether a documentary looks good or not very much depends on the editor's work but then the editor doesn't actually accompany you when you were there at the scene and so there's a lot of things that I can't actually control and I feel like okay maybe I would be a better journalist if I focus on writing because with words there's a lot more flexibility a lot more room for me to maneuver if you like for me to tell the story in a way that I like and another thing is about dramatization which I think is very common in a lot of documentary work so my executive producer for example she would always be constantly looking for stuff that could sensate I won't say sensationalized but it's definitely dramatizing about telling a dramatic sort of story so they need stuff that would hold the audience attention or keep people watching and watching till the end but I would say yeah most of the time it's about real journalism but there's also this element of dramatizing the journalistic work which I'm not always comfortable with and so that's the thing I don't like yeah that makes total sense to me what TV station was it out of curiosity and uh, it's TVB so at, in Hong Kong we used to have two what we call free to air television stations so they got a special broadcasting license. They're not public broadcasters, but they are free to air, which means you don't have to pay to watch them. They're commercial channels, but of course, they're also bound by certain broadcasting rules in Hong Kong. And so it's TVB, so it's the bigger one of the two, the other one being ATV, which no longer existed, actually. And so, I mean, quite sad for the television channel, because in the last few years, it lost so much of the credibility it used to enjoy because of this political journalism they do. I mean, a lot of people think they are very pro-Beijing. They're more pro-Beijing than pro-democracy in the Hong Kong context. And so they lost a lot of the trust and a lot of credibility among the Hong Kong viewers. But that was the more recent past of the television channel. So when I was still working there, I think it was all right. I mean, I could do the journalism work that I I think should be done, but it seems to be getting worse and worse since then. What language should they broadcast in out of curiosity? It's bilingual, so they broadcast in... Well, it's actually trilingual, so they broadcast in Cantonese, Mandarin, and English. I was working for the English channel, which is called the Pearl Channel. So I was doing this documentary program called the Pearl Report, a weekly program, half hour long, focusing on current affairs. I remember, I mean, apart from the Guide Docs program, 
program that I did. The other one that I helped do was about the chief executive election at that time. So the chief executive is the leadership post in Hong Kong political career. So it's the top person ruling Hong Kong. So it was the 2012 election of the chief executive. By election, I mean it's an election taken part by 1,200 people in Hong Kong with the ultimate approval of Beijing. So some people call it an election. Some people call it a selection, depending on how you look at it. But the official name being an election. So that was it. I was helping a team of political journalists do a half hour program summarizing what happened in the electioneering and what sort of influence Beijing played. And yeah, that sort of thing, a half hour program. So that was what I did. Cool. And so you came out of that and you finished your program. And how do you end up at SCMP? Was it very basic? You saw a job, applied, got it? Or how did it work? And what was your first job there? Ah, so that's an interesting story. So I was still in HKU at that time. So I was doing a course on data journalism. That's um, Hong Kong University. Hong Kong for, University of Hong Kong. Just for yeah. people who don't know, yeah. Right. Uh, and so the data journalists teacher was also working at the SCMP at that time. So she was a data journalist, apparently. And so, yeah, she was doing a very, in my wording, I maybe I shouldn't say that, but that was a stupid project. It was about compiling <laughs> all the international schools in Hong Kong and listing all the location, prizes, curriculum. The SCMP being an English newspaper, we got a lot of parents who were interested to send their kids to the most expensive sort of international national schools in sure. the city. And so they compiled this annual school guide for parents around April or May, right before the new school year starts so that the parents could make up their mind. And so my lecturer, apparently she didn't want to do it herself. So she was like, oh, Stuart, I have to compile this magazine. I mean, I know it's not the most exciting job you want to go, but if you get a foot in the newspaper, maybe you could find something else. So I was like, yeah, sure, I'm in. And so that was boring, of course, but it was not. <laughs> That's a very good start to have a sense of how editorial newsrooms work because I was sitting alongside journalists in the same newsroom. And so I was on the one hand compiling this most exciting set of schools <laughs> in Hong Kong. But on the other hand, I was also watching people, how they cover the chief executive election and how they cover politics. And then how my data journalist mentor, for example, she's doing like interesting data set of journalism. At that time, she was doing a story about how Hong Kong companies Companies were helping Iranian companies skirt UN sanctions and help their ships embark and disembark in different ports in Hong Kong and stuff like that. So it was like an amazing experience for me to get a sense of how real life journalism works. So mm -hmm. yes, that was my first job and not a very glorious start, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> but you put out the guide and then did you keep doing it or put out the guide and then did something else come up? And yeah, something else comes up. It was a three month temporary job. So I got it done. And then at around the same time, some old classmates of mine from the law school, they were telling me at that time, Hong Kong was introducing a new law about minimum wage. And so apparently there was some controversy about how that was going to be applied to law graduates who were trying to get an 
internship in law firms. So apparently the law firms being such a big lobbyist group in Hong Kong, they managed to get some sort of exemptions to the minimum wage regulations. So basically meaning they don't have to pay a minimum wage to law interns and or the poor law interns. They didn't actually get paid <laughs> as much as they should be. And so I pitched the story to my mentor first and then because she was a data journalist. So she was like, okay, I'll talk to the Hong Kong news editor. And then the Hong Kong news editor liked the idea. And then he came back to me and asked me for more details. And then he asked me to write a 750 word article about it. And then I finished it. And then apparently he liked what I wrote. And then he put it on A3, you know, the third page of the newspaper. And I was all over the moon. Wow. I was so happy with the big graphics. And I was like, oh my God, this was nothing like I expected. And then that's how I got to start like in the proper side of journalism, if you like. And yeah, he gave me a job. And funny enough, he's still working in SEMP. And he's now the, let me get his title right. I don't want to embarrass him here. He is the executive editor, so he's basically the number two in the SEMP now. Oh, wow. And it was actually him who hired me back in this European correspondent position. And so I'm very, very grateful to him. His name is Chung Yan, Chung Yan Chow, and he's one of the nicest guys in the SEMP newsroom. And so he was actually the first one to put my story on a newspaper all those years ago in 2011. Yeah, I still remember how excited I was when the story got published. Yeah, that's great. Especially coming right out of school. I know that feeling. And also having actual physical newspaper and picking up the newspaper. Absolutely. Um, Which you probably don't enjoy being in Reuters. Yeah, no, no. It's pretty rare. I see my name in newsprint anymore. Quite unfair. It's, it's okay. I don't feel too bad about it. I, I got over it a couple of years ago, probably at this point. Um, <laughs> I mean, just to put into context for people who aren't familiar with South China Morning Post, I mean, you can explain it better than me growing up in Hong Kong, but I presume well, it's... You work you know, in the... China, you're fairly familiar with the newspaper, I'm sure. Right. No, yeah, yeah. And it, it does a lot of good reporting on China. And I was familiar from that. But for people who don't know anything about it, I mean, it is basically the most prestigious newspaper in Hong Kong, right? I would presume, at least in the English language, I presume it's a big deal when you get a job there, especially right out of school. I mean, yeah, it's a very, um, how should I put it? So I like to say it's the most critical or balanced source of news about China from the greater China region published in English. So we are based in Hong Kong, which means we got the constitutional protection of freedom of press, freedom of the media and freedom of speech. So we got to publish whatever we want to write about. So for example, we could write critical pieces about Xi Jinping's, the Chinese president's decision to abolish the term limit a couple of years ago from the constitution. So that's the critical reporting we could do, which would be unthinkable for people across the border, on the other side of the border in mainland China, because for people who don't know, of course, you know, all the Chinese media are under the Communist Party, and so they can't write anything the propaganda department doesn't like or doesn't want them to write about. But in Hong Kong, it's a different story. So we have a very vibrant news scene, a very vibrant journalism scene. And so when it comes to human rights stories, human rights sort of violations that took place in China or natural disasters or the coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan, of course, we can write more critically than 
than the mainland Chinese counterparts could. The interesting thing about the South China Morning Post, of course, is that we are published in English, which means that we have a more international reach compared to the other Chinese language newspapers or media platforms in Hong Kong. And I mean, we have maybe one or two other English source of news in Hong Kong, but the other newspaper being more like a tabloid. And then we also have a new website published in English, which is also doing very good job. But in terms of manpower and the sort of scope of the stories that are being covered, I think, yeah, we are doing a slightly better job. Yeah, it was definitely a very big honor, I would say, for me to be able to join this company, writing about China, especially in such an interesting time where everybody is talking about the rise of China, what it means for the whole world. For example, here in Europe, on different levels of EU decision-making, they're always constantly talking about the influence of China and how that is changing the way EU policymaking works. Or if you look at the US and Washington, they're also talking about China all the time. So different parts of the world talks about China, but here in Hong Kong, here in the center of our newsroom, we are always also constantly looking at what kind of image or what kind of message China is trying to talk about, and then we could interpret it in our own unbiased way. And then, of course, we're also very interested in how the rest of the world receives that message and what they do in response to what China is doing. So I would say we have new things to talk about every day and we have new stories to follow every day. It's definitely a very, very exciting time to be working in such a kind of newsroom. So yes, it's a great experience. And can you just walk me through the positions you worked in up until now that you're in Brussels? Right. So when I first started, it was a general news position because as I told you, I didn't have any journalist experience before that. And so I was like, yeah, I really want to try different beats before I focused on one particular thing. So I joined the Hong Kong desk at that time. So the Hong Kong news editor would send me out to different assignments every day covering different press conferences, depending on what's happening. So I could be writing something about street hawkers on Monday and then following the legislative council on Wednesday and then going to a whatever breastfeeding sort of press conference on Friday. So it's about totally different things every day. And also took the initiative to take some weekend shifts because on weekends, usually there are much fewer people working. And so I could actually work on the big stuff or I could sort of train myself to work on more important stories on weekend shifts. And so that was how I started for a few years. And then about two years later, I think there was a big corruption case in Hong Kong, which in the chief secretary, which is like the number two figure in the Hong Kong political system, second to the chief executive. And so a former chief secretary was being indicted for taking bribery from one of the big four real estate companies in Hong Kong. So the chief secretary was indicted and then the two owners of that real estate company was also indicted. And so it was a big case at that time. It was the biggest, most high profile corruption case in Hong Kong. Kong's history at that point. And so the Hong Kong news editor, well, she knew that I got like some sort of legal training background. And at that time, our court reporter was on a one-year leave to study in Britain. And so no one could take care of the case. So she reached out to me and asked, oh, Stuart, would you like to follow this case? 
it's going to be a long trial. You could only do that. You're not going to be running around town. So you have to have the best self-discipline. You have to come to court every day. Can you take it? And I said, yeah, sure, I can do that. And I'm interested to follow this landmark drama theatrical case. So that was how I slowly got into court reporting for that particular trial. So I followed through. It lasted about eight months. So it was so long, like from oh, wow. nine to six. And then after 6 p.m., I still need to go back to the newsroom to write sometimes on A1 because it's such a big case. And so I had to stay up like until 10 p.m. when everything went to print, making sure there's no mistake, nothing that would put me on a defamation trial or something like that. And so <laughs> it was a very tough eight months at that time, but I absolutely loved it. I remember the day of the verdict probably came on a boxing day or something like that. And it was like one of the quiet news seasons, if you like. But still, I mean, it was a very interesting experience. And then shortly afterwards, we got the umbrella movement in Hong Kong, which was one of the biggest protests in Hong Kong before the extradition bill protests that we saw in the last half year. But that was in 2014. So at that point, the Beijing government was proposing some sort of democracy reform for Hong Kong, which not that many people in Hong Kong think is democratic at all. So people were not happy. They demanded more. And so they occupied some of the thoroughfares near the government headquarters in Hong Kong. And lots of students showed up. Joshua Wong, the very famous Hong Kong student leader, he actually led the student movement at that time. And so that was the single most important news story in 2014. So I was part of the reporting team covering the protest every day. That was how I made the transition from court reporting to more political journalism, more political reporting. So that was 2014. Yeah, so I did political journalism until I would say 2016, 2017, when I got another job opportunity to join the Beijing Bureau for the SEMP. So covering a little bit of China politics, a little bit of mainland China-Hong Kong relations, which was also getting very tense from the Hong Kong perspective, because since the handover, initially people did have some sort of expectation or did have some sort of optimism about the sort of relations with the Beijing government. But as time went on, Beijing was flexing more and more muscles towards Hong Kong. And so people in Hong Kong were not very happy with, in their words, the way the autonomy was being taken away by the Beijing authorities. And so I was in Beijing and I was following the two sessions, which you're very familiar with. You know, the, How would you describe two sessions? I mean, I always find it so difficult to describe two sessions. Do it for me now. It's like a, a rubber stamp Congress, right? It's uh, it's where I don't know. It's uh, the the actual event itself is held in this big ornate Great Hall of the People, and it's kind of like pro forma speeches being delivered by leaders, and you know you try to puzzle out what you can from the small signals they give, and maybe if you get lucky in this sea of Chinese officials who you're not very familiar with, because most of the year there's absolutely no access. Say you do recognize somebody and run up to them, maybe you can get a quote or two. But uh, Yeah, but we're talking about a crowd of 2,000 people. Right. It's 
it's damn near <laughs> impossible. I've I've done it a couple times, but yeah, it's a it's challenging to get meaningful news out of it. I would exactly. say exactly. Yeah, so that was what I did in Beijing, and that was what you did as well. And then I just accidentally got this opportunity to move away from China to go to Oxford. So it was a research fellowship position at the Reuters Institute for Journalism and Media Studies at the Oxford University. So I spent half a year. Basically, by that point, I already quit the SEMP because I wanted to try something new. So I moved to Oxford. First, I did the research fellowship, taking a look at media self-censorship in Hong Kong since the handover. And half a year later, I got another job opportunity to move to the BBC in London. And so I spent a year with the BBC World Service covering what's happening in China and Hong Kong, but from London. So it was not really a frontline journalism experience. It was more like sitting at the headquarters, discussing with the editors about what's happening. And, you know, the World Service's radio, right? Uh, funny you ask this. So the World Service used to be about radio, but nowadays it's half radio, half online. So I actually focused on the online part, writing analysis articles about the biggest news of the day about China and Hong Kong. And the BBC doesn't care so much about Asia. So when I talk about like big things, it's like really big things. Like, for example, one article I wrote was about the Japanese prime minister visiting China, like the first time in seven years or something like that. And mm -hmm. so occasionally going on TV as well, because sometimes when they could not get a correspondent from Beijing to go on air to talk about what's happening, they would ask someone in London or somewhere else in Britain to join the studio and then describe or explain the news in three minutes, five minutes, a little bit of chit chat with the presenter. They saw thing and stayed for a year. I mean, it was an absolutely interesting experience, that sort of exposure and that sort of covering the most interesting news from a BBC perspective, reaching out to so many audience, so many people all over the world. That was a very exciting experience, but it was not about frontline journalism, which was a bit disappointing for me at that point, because I'm the sort of person who really likes to talk to people, who really likes to go out and meet different people and join a protest or join a parliamentary debate or just go to all sorts of press conferences, this sort of person. So I found it a little bit boring to be just sitting in the BBC headquarters and watching news on the television. And that's not what I wanted to do. So at that point, I reached out to the SEMP editors again and I asked them if they would like to get something from me from Europe from time to time. So initially, I started going back more like a freelancer doing all sorts of unplanned stories. It's not a contract position, so I couldn't really plan my work that way. So it was more like, okay, something happening today. So I asked my editors in Hong Kong, would you like to take this story? And then sometimes they said yes, sometimes they said no. But when they said yes, I would start doing research and then writing up my story from London at that time because I was still living in London. Did you quit the BBC at that point? Well, at that point... I was freelancing as well. So I changed the contract because I still want to work there, but maybe as a freelancer. So that would allow me to also freelance for other media organizations to figure out what I wanted to do most. 
Gotcha. Okay. And so I'm guessing where this goes is it gradually evolves into you're doing quite a bit of work for them and they uh, hire you on full time to go to Brussels? Yeah, exactly. So I just decided, okay, I really like to do more frontline journalism and writing about European politics. And at that time, I mean, I spent a year and a half in the UK, first half year being in Oxford, being a university city, it was nice. But living in London, which is like a mega city, I mean, the sort of pay that you get as a journalist in London is quite disproportionate to the amount that you need to spend to keep the sort of quality of life that I used to enjoy in Hong Kong. I mean, everything in London was super expensive and you're not actually making so much money as a journalist in Britain so as to afford that sort of quality of life, going out for a dinner, going to theatre or just travelling around the country. So I was like... Okay, I tried living in London, which has been a dream for such a long time. I did it. I mean, maybe I could come back one day. But at that moment, I wanted to try a different life. And then I knew about the upcoming European Union leadership position changes or the European Parliament elections that were to follow in a few months time. So I was talking to my boss where I should live and be based for this position. And then the editors in Hong Kong, they were like, oh, it's up to you as long as you like the city it works fine for us. And so I decided to move to Brussels after I consulted a few journalist friends around me and they said, yeah, Brussels sounds like a good destination for you because you want to focus on more about EU diplomacy, EU-China relations, but also in a multicultural international environment. The interesting thing about Brussels compared to London is that we like to think of London as a super international city, which is true, but my own experience in Brussels is that people tend to underrate or underestimate Brussels as a European city. But the longer I live here, the more I realize how international people are, how global their mindset is. Because EU, well, we're talking about 27 nations now, no longer 28, but everyone, at least in the European Union bubble, all the Eurocrats who work here, they have to have that sort of very fundamental mindset that they're working with people from a different background. If you're a French guy working here, it's about dealing with potentially a German person today and then a Spanish person tomorrow and then an Eastern European next month. So it's always about being intercultural in that sense. So me as a Hong Kong journalist working in this crowd of people is actually quite easy, I have to say, compared to, I imagine if I have to deal with officials in the British politics, you know, in the British Parliament or in Whitehall, where all they had to deal with is British people. But here in Brussels, people have to deal with different people. And that awareness of differences, I think it makes a lot of difference for me as the journalist. And it makes my life very easy here because people are always transparent. People are always happy to talk to journalists. That's great. And how long have you been in Brussels? I've moved here in July last year. So it's eight months or so. Yeah, it's been eight months. And so I'm still always learning something new every day. I mean, eight months could be a long period, but for me, it's a a short period. It's been a very tense period. Also because my job not only involves Brussels, but it's also about other countries in Europe as well. So sometimes I would follow the news depending on what's happening. So for example, a few months ago, there was this 5G debate in the Bundestag 
park in Berlin. So I took a trip there. And yeah, it depends on where the news is. And so I imagine myself also following the British debate about Brexit quite closely before they have to make up their mind by the 31st of December, whether they would prefer a hard Brexit or soft Brexit as sort of arguments. What else are we expecting? I mean, Eastern Europe is one of the areas that I want to cover a little bit more because in terms of the Chinese influence is a big battleground between China on the one hand, Brussels, you know, being the capital of the European Union on the other. So the EU is always very wary of the level of Chinese influence in Eastern Europe, whereas Eastern Europe themselves, they're also very unhappy with the lack of financial commitment from Brussels. So the consequence being they would reach out to other, well, rich countries for investments, China being one of them. But on the other hand, it's such an underreported area on English language or international media. So when we talk about Europe nowadays, a lot of journalistic focus would automatically go to Brussels, go to London, go to Berlin, but very little attention talking about what Bucharest is doing or what Prague is focusing on. So there's a lot of traditional imbalance between Eastern Europe and Western Europe when it comes to media coverage. So I'm trying to focus a little more in 2020 to try to get a sense of what China is doing there and what those countries think about their relationship with everybody. Yeah, definitely. I have a friend who's in Romania and he says there's a huge dearth of journalists and he named a huge triangle. I'm trying to remember exactly what it was between like (laughs) Greece, Moscow and like Hungary. He said there's very, very few people covering it. Um, So it seems like rich territory. And I figured I'd just say here how we know each other, which is we met only two months ago, I guess, at this point in Madrid uh, when you had come to cover COP25 climate conference, which, yeah, no, I was impressed how you just showed up second week, zeroed in on a couple things, wrote those things. I I mean, I was there part of this big Reuters machine of like four or five text reporters and a bunch of video people and all this, but you were able to find your footing pretty quickly. I don't know. I find giant events like that can be kind of disorienting. (laughs) It uh, was. It certainly was. (laughs) But uh, yeah, we got to But that's one thing I envy you guys, I have to say. Here in Europe, I'm always on a one-man band, having to organize myself and look out for the big stories. Whereas, I guess one advantage of working at a very international media like you, you could share resources with your colleagues, you could get so much more information from your colleagues. It's like a real teamwork spirit. And of course, people respect your brand as well. But I mean, in terms of the working environment is so different from me as a foreign correspondent for a Hong Kong newspaper. Right, right. I guess you got to focus in a bit more on China and what was going on with them. We got to stake out the Chinese booth a lot, wrestle with Chinese bodyguards. (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, Uh, trust me, they were behaving very well compared to how they behave in Beijing. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Did you end up, just out of curiosity, I never did ask you, did your big think piece come out? I think they have been procrastinating a lot. And I think they probably published it last weekend or the coming weekend. I'm not sure, but it's been a terrible delay, partly because of the protest and partly because of the coronavirus and partly because of the Christmas break. So sure. I hope I hope we've got to read it soon. Fingers crossed. And one other thing I can edit out, but just out of curiosity, I'm like, oh, is it out yet? So I looked up what did Stuart write about COP25? And there were a couple stories where it was some other guy's name first and you're 
surname second. And I was like, what the hell? Stuart was definitely the only one here. Who is this other guy? Why does he get his name first? I didn't uh, know what that was well, about. No, you don't have to edit it out. Well, first of all, it's not a big issue for me. And second of all, it's only because those journalists have been writing some sort of background stuff. So they've done a lot of research for me, actually, from Hong Kong. So they would, for example, they would inform me about what's going to happen in COP25. And they would keep me informed about what Beijing, for example, said about the climate debate as well. It's like a teamwork as well. The difference being they were based in Hong Kong and I was based in COP25 in Madrid. And so they wrote some paragraphs just so they could put out on time for the Hong Kong printing deadline. And then when I got to report something from Madrid, usually it would be much closer to the printing deadline, if not after it. So because they already wrote something, so obviously they would put their name there. And then when I filed my part, sometimes the editors were not so aware of Stuart Lau being in Madrid and that guy being in Hong Kong, that sort of distinction. So they would just, okay, this guy wrote something, Stuart Lau wrote something. Afterwards, they would put Stuart's name after that. So there's no malicious intent whatsoever. It's just people rushing before the printing deadline or people just being a little bit oblivious about which reporter is in which city. So I didn't really pay a lot of attention to that, to be honest. The print deadline, I guess, in Europe must be in the middle of the day if it's late at night in Hong Kong. Exactly, exactly. And that was one reason why I have to talk to you right now in the middle of the night because if it's like 12 hours ago, like midday, impossible because I would be rushing like deadline before maybe 1 p.m. or 2 p.m. European time, which would be like 9 p.m. Hong Kong time, which would be the print deadline, of course. And so usually my schedule in Europe, I wake up at 7 a.m. and then I would take a very quick look at all the news that I might have missed first in Hong Kong and then in Europe. And then I would give my editors a bit of an idea what I'm going to follow. Of course, it's a two-way traffic. Sometimes I tell them what I want to focus on and sometimes they ask me to write about certain issues. So for example, today it was all about coronavirus. So Angela Merkel made a phone call with the Chinese prime minister and then Britain upgrading the warning signal to the virus. And so the editors asked me to write about the coronavirus. So by about 10 a.m., 11 a.m., I would have to write up a skeleton of my article. And then by 12, I would have to finalize everything and then send it back to Hong Kong for sub-editing, editing and publication. So usually it would be after lunchtime here in Europe that I got to focus on the enterprise stories, the research that I would like to do for later publications, usually not for immediate publication. But if there are any breaking news happening in Europe after that time, I would still write it up and then I would usually send it on to the Washington Bureau of the newspaper. Usually it would be the morning or early afternoon in Washington, whereas it's the afternoon or evening on my side. I would write up something about breaking news in Europe and then I would just send them to the US editors for them to put it online. And then when the Hong Kong desk wakes up, they would put those stories on the print publications, the print versions a day later. So it's a 24-hour news cycle nowadays, but not so much pressure from my side because I don't have a bureau here. So mainly it's about liaising with the Hong Kong office or the Washington bureau, depending on what time the news comes up. That's interesting though, that schedule, it sounds like it can end up being quite a lot of work, I guess, depending how much it news is can going be, on. It can be, yeah, it can be, yeah.
So the next part, we'll discuss some stories. So first off, because I don't like to end on a down note, I usually ask the question first, if there's a story you can think of that's quote unquote story that got away, a story that you always wanted to do and it didn't come off. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually about interviewing a Hong Kong politician. Um, so her name is Lydia Dunn. So Lydia Dunn used to be the most important official back in the British Hong Kong days, only second to the governor. So the governor being the one appointed by the British government to govern Hong Kong. But then usually that person would appoint somebody as the deputy. In this case, it was Lydia Dunn. So she was, well, let's say the number one in the executive council, the executive council being something like a cabinet. And so she was the number one person in the executive council after the governor. And so she was very influential in the British Hong Kong time, so much so that after the Tiananmen Square crackdown, when a lot of Hong Kong people became very skeptical about, quote-unquote, returning to China, she actually traveled to London and tried to lobby on behalf of Hong Kong people, talking to Margaret Thatcher to try to grant as many British passports to Hong Kong people as possible, civil servants, police officers, and a lot of people, a lot of business people as well. So in a way, she was trying to open up a sort of back door to as many Hong Kong people as possible to get a second passport at that very turbulent time. But also because she was such a close figure to British politics, the Chinese government decided quite early on that she would not hold any public office after the handover. So basically, after the handover on the 1st of July 1997, well, I won't say she became jobless, but she just totally disappeared from the political scene. So what she did was, because she was married to a British guy, the guy used to be a secretary for justice in Hong Kong, and the couple apparently moved back to Britain, to London, and they became quite low profile and they would only show up in public appearance maybe once a year, hand over anniversary, that sort of event. And so I tried to get in touch with her and try to initiate an interview with her on multiple occasions, the latest one being the 20th anniversary of the handover in 2017. But she declined and she just probably didn't want any more media exposure, trying not to comment too much on the ongoing political developments. And she really wanted a clean break from politics. I mean, even I tried multiple times, she kept saying no. And so that was, yeah, one of the stories that I really want to do, one of the interviews that I really want to do, but never happened. She sounds like a fascinating person to talk to. And then on to a story that you're proud of. If you could walk us through how you got the idea, how you reported it out, basically start to finish how you did the story. One thing that really stands out would be, it's actually a personal trip to Cuba. And so I was traveling to Cuba with my partner at the time. So I was looking around the country, of course. But before I went on the trip, I actually read a book about the Chinese migrants to Cuba. This is a very interesting group of people. So they moved away from China after 1949, when the Communist Party took over, because the whole country became a nationalized economy, if you like. So it's very difficult to make money. So they were like, okay, we'll just try our life somewhere else. And some of them went first to San Francisco and then went all the way down 
down to Cuba. So they started doing business and doing some trade for a number of years. And then Fidel Castro came to power and they lost everything and they were stuck in Cuba. They couldn't pay for the flight tickets back home and probably they felt a bit unsure where to go. China was communist at that time. Cuba was also communist, so it doesn't really make much difference. So they chose to stay behind in Cuba. Lots of intermarriages and lots of people. So they have their own community, but they were quite prominent in Chinatown as well. But I just normally when I'm traveling, I would stay away from Chinatowns because I don't want to be eating roasted duck and all that overseas. But in this particular trip, I just found it so fascinating. I just decided to go and to look them up and talk to some of them who remembered very vividly which particular street in Hong Kong they used to live in for a few years before they made their journeys across the Pacific all the way to Cuba. It's just amazing to hear their stories about Hong Kong in the 50s or in the 40s and how they lived mostly under isolation in the last four or five decades and a lot of people, they would still play mahjong, they would still cook Chinese food, they have their own club to mingle with other Chinese people. And it's just a very memorable trip that I make, just talking to them and then writing an article about their life in Cuba in the last few decades and what kind of message they have for their family members who are still in China or in Hong Kong. And it's not a very hard-hitting piece of journalism, if you like, but it's one of those human touch stories that reflect a bigger geopolitical or historical perspective. That sort of story that I really enjoy writing. I mean, of course, most of the time we are not doing that kind of things. Most of the time we are talking about what Donald Trump is talking about, what Brexit is all about. But when I actually got an experience to or got such a chance to talk to this forgotten people, if you like, I mean, I really, really cherish this sort of experience. Fascinating that, yeah, to have moved out of a communist country only for the second country to also exactly. become communist. So you had this idea going in or was it more like you had read the book, oh, I'll go check it out and it kind of snowballed or how did that work out? No, I just decided to go to Cuba at that time because Fidel Castro was turning 90 that year. He's already dead, of course. But at that time, I just decided, okay, Castro's still alive. I should go and take a look when he still is. And so I went. And before I went, I, I mean, that book about the Cuban migrants in China actually came out not too long ago. And it was a new book at that time. So I found it in a bookstore, I think. And then I couldn't stop reading it, basically. And I... I followed some of the hints in the book and I went to the Chinatown to talk to well, some of the names mentioned in the book, but also some other names that were not mentioned in the book, some really fascinating stories. So yeah, I decided to go and then I read the book and then I miraculously found those people. But it wasn't the type of situation where like you're supposed to be out lying on the beach and your partner's like, what are you doing doing work during vacation? Um is it that uncommon? Let me see. Yes. The thing is, when I was talking to those people, when I pushed the recording button and then when I started taking notes, when I started walking around their room, looking at the old photo albums, I was not actually feeling as if I were working. I was just feeling like I was walking into someone's story, listening and recording because they were very old and I want to keep their words and I want to make a chronic if you like, about what they wanted to tell me, what they wanted the rest of the world to know about. So at that particular moment, I didn't really feel like 
I was working, I was just feeling so fortunate to be listening to that story, to have someone actually tell this story to me. And it was only after I came back to Hong Kong, when I sat down in the office, when I started playing the recorder, that moment, the sense of responsibility came up to me that I really needed to write a good article, not for myself, but for them, for their stories to be told by more people. Funny you mentioned this. I mean, because after that story got published, I got a few emails that I typically wouldn't get when I was writing an article about Carrie Lam or Xi Jinping. No reader would bother writing me an email. But for that Cuban story, I got some interesting emails, some people telling me some other related stories that they knew about or some readers telling me how moved they were about those people. But there was also one particularly interesting email I got from a librarian in, I think it's the Arizona State University in the United States. So basically the librarian was telling me that they got a lot of albums about old Cuban Chinese people, actually. And so they were asking if I would like to make a visit to the library to take a look at their collection and whether I would be happy to give them some of the photos I took during my trip. I still haven't had a chance to make the trip to the university to meet the librarian. But yeah, I've given him some of the photos I took during the trip, which I hope will be collected by the university. I also met the librarian once when he was visiting Beijing. We had a very nice lunch. We talked about how he came to be researching that particular subject. And it's just an amazing experience, not just about telling the Cuban people stories, but also about getting to know different people in different parts of the world who happen to be following the same stuff. And that's the amazing part of it. That's a great story behind the story. Another example of some more hard-hitting journalism was I was on the team of the Panama Papers investigation. So for those who don't know, it's one of the biggest investigative journalism projects in the last decade, initiated by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalism. Initially, I was not part of the team, though the way it works is very interesting because they got representatives in different countries and regions. So I, without being aware of this fact before being approached. One of their representatives in Hong Kong is actually someone I know, I would say, quite well. And when he got hold of the information, he reached out to me out of the blue and asked me, oh, Stuart, would you like to follow up on the Panama Papers? And I was like, what? Are you part of it? And then he said, yeah, yeah I am. And then I was like, okay. So it's so this, uh, he's, he's another journalist because it was like journalists from all different publications collaborating. It's that type of setup. So he was a journalist? Let's say he's a journalist, yes. Sure. (laughs) He wants to be discreet in this, so let's say he's a journalist. But anyway, of course I knew about the organization, but up to that point I, I knew nothing about how it works, how this sort of international projects work. So when I actually met this person and when he gave me like a USB file containing all the email documents, I was like, wow, this was totally beyond my imagination. And so I very quickly followed up. At that time, I was still on the Hong Kong desk in the newspaper. So my focus was more on the Hong Kong business people, Hong Kong politicians, how they were setting up offshore accounts in the BVI and wherever they are in the Caribbean. And so we wrote a series of articles about these very rich, very powerful people in Hong Kong, how they were hiding their assets somewhere else without anyone knowing before that. And so I think I usually 
remembered the steep learning curves the best, like when I had to get something done within a very short time, which I would have thought was beyond my capacity or beyond my knowledge. Of course, it wouldn't be perfect, but I delivered at least part of the story. That's where usually my motivation or my sense of accomplishment comes from. And that's the kind of stories that I remember the best. So it was Hush Hush, the guy who gave you the USB drive, but he wasn't an original leaker. He had gotten it from... No, uh, no, he's not the yeah. leaker. He got hold of the information from the consortium. And let's say he was on this mission to look for Hong Kong journalists to be part of the scheme, part of the reporting team in Hong Kong. So, yep, he found me um, as part of the team. Right. At that point, it was still not big news. They still had to keep a lid on it. And exactly. All these publications, you agree to this day? of publication. You said a series of stories came out of it. Give me an example of one of the stories that you specifically did for SCMP. Ah, yes. So one of the stories that I did was actually about the university has become very famous by now is the Polytechnic University, which we have seen the police barricading during the extradition bill protest and all that. But yeah, the story I did had nothing to do with the extradition bill, of course, but it was about a university basically setting up BVI companies and trying to hide some of the failed investments, apparently, to the BVI company, you know, basically transfer some of the loss-making initiatives to the BVI company so that they wouldn't have to be subject to the parliament's scrutiny, the Legislative Council's scrutiny, because all the universities in Hong Kong, they are public universities, and so all their finances would be subject to legislative scrutiny. But for this particular university, they decided to set up BVI companies to hide some of their failed investment about some Chinese medicine projects, I believe. And so, <laughs> and what makes the story even more interesting is that the person who signed off this BVI setup, at that time, he had become the Hong Kong Secretary for Innovation. So he was part of the cabinet of the chief executive. So we basically followed Secretary Yang and we followed him in a public event. And then we asked him when you were leading the Polytechnic University, why did you decide to sign off this document? What was the reason behind the BBI setup? And then he was like, uh, you have to ask Polytechnic University because I'm not part of it anymore. And then we asked Polytechnic University and then they came back and forth, back and forth until they finally admitted what they did, pledging not to do it anymore. And then the government also saying they would review all the university procedures and make sure nothing like that would ever happen again. So it was not like a crazy story about a particular prime minister taking bribes, um, nothing like that sort we could find in Hong Kong. But what we did was we tried to expose this weird arrangement being conducted by university and then hopefully avoiding this kind of thing from happening again. Yeah, no, that's a great story and lots of interesting intrigue with Chinese traditional medicine investments and that sort of thing. Out of curiosity, did the innovation guy, is he still in government? Were there major well, consequences for him? Unfortunately, he still is. He's still gotcha. keeping his job. Yes, after all <laughs> these years. Wow. So now we'll go ahead to the quicker questions, the lightning round, as I call it cheesily. Are you ready? 
Sure. So the first one is, what is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day? Funny enough, it's Xinhua. I need to know what the Chinese leaders are talking about vis-a-vis Europe so that I could sort of follow up on the European angle. Great. Thank God you did not say the New York Times. Everybody keeps saying the New York Times. I'm like, <laughs> I get it. But the question is more geared towards like what you check for work. That's like, like I wake up and read three Brazilian newspapers and that sort of thing. Otherwise, everybody says kind of the similar things. And then what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch just for fun? New Yorker. The long reads. The long reads, exactly. And then the next question is, what is the best journalistic article, piece, again, whatever medium that you have consumed recently? I would say is the article everyone has been talking about, the New Yorker piece about Soleimani, the Iranian general who got killed in the American airstrikes. So when that airstrike happened, so few people have heard about this Iranian general. But on Twitter, some people started retweeting this I think 2013 or 2014 article on the New Yorker, basically a personal profile about this Soleimani general. And so people all of a sudden got such a long article to get so much information about this person that no one knew about. And so... It was very good reporting, of course, but it was also... Sometimes you write about a person at that point, no one gives any attention, no one really understands the significance of that article. But who knows, a few years later, when something happens, then your article suddenly becomes the must-read for everybody. And it was exactly the case this time around. Do you remember who wrote it? Yes, I do, because I just bought his book on Amazon and it just arrived today. His name is Dexter Filkins. The next question... Any particular subject matter you read into that isn't specifically related to your job? It must be aviation. So I'm always so fascinated about all the different plane models, all the routes of different airlines, where they fly and budget airlines, what they want to focus on. And then all sorts of interesting stories about aviation, I would say. Yeah, they fascinate me. Do you see yourself ever wanting to make that your work? Well, I would say we have a very, very fine aviation reporter in SEMP, so not really. I mean, based in Europe, I'm sure there might be some aviation stories coming from time to time, and I would be happy for that. But you know what? Interest doesn't have to translate into work, so I'm happy consuming news about aviation, but does it actually mean I want to write about it? Maybe not. I totally agree. It very rapidly starts to feel like work, and then it kind of colors your vision about reading that sort of material. Um, I know. Everyone likes to watch porn, but does anyone want to be involved in it? <laughs> or write about it. Although write you know, about there's it. that great David Foster Wallace uh, <laughs> long form piece. I, I have no idea what publication it was originally in where he goes and hangs out with a bunch of porn journalists and then goes to like the <laughs> adult whatever awards. And yeah, seriously. Yeah, yeah. And the journalists he follows, let me see if I can remember his name. They all write under pen names, obviously, uh. is like Dick Filth. And like, <laughs> I forget the other guy's name, but just these hilarious characters, right. um, beep, beep. different, right. different career paths for sure. And then is Twitter important to you? Yes, because my role involves quite a lot of countries in Europe. So when I talk about like EU-China relations, I'm also talking about the 27 EU countries and their respective relations with China. And so in a lot of these countries, Slovak or Hungarian in their local languages, I don't immediately get 
to know about what their media are talking about. So on Twitter, I could actually follow some think tank people who are focused on China relations in these different countries. So for example, a China watcher based in Prague or a China watcher based in Zagreb. And from time to time, they would be talking about what their media platforms, what their national media are talking about, or what their politicians are talking about, or what the foreign ministers are talking about. So I get a very quick sense of what's happening in different parts of Europe vis-a-vis China relations, cybersecurity, all the subject areas that I'm interested in. And so most of these people would write in English so that they could reach a bigger audience. And so it's definitely a very useful platform for me to understand what's happening in different parts of Europe in English or sometimes Chinese instead of the local language, which I don't understand. And then if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? No, I don't want to say that. That sounds so crazy. No, I... <laughs> no body swapping for you? No, really. I'm happy with what I'm doing. And To put it another way, I don't know any journalists you admire, dead journalists? Oh. Historic journalists. Actually, please. I do have a name. I do have a name. She's actually a Hong Kong journalist, so I would pronounce the name in Cantonese because I really respect her. So her name is Lei Manzeng. So she used to work for the English channel of TVB back mm-hmm. in the good old days. So basically, that was an interview she did in 1991. So she and her Chinese language colleague at TVB, they got an interview opportunity with Li Peng, the Chinese premier at that time. That was two years after Tiananmen Square crackdown when all the Western media boycotted any interview opportunities with the Chinese leader or the Chinese leaders were just not interested to take any interviews. But in 1991, when China was reopening up, so to say, it was attracting foreign investments, they decided it was time to do some interviews. And so they invited these two prominent Hong Kong journalists to do a television interview in Mandarin to talk about whatever they wanted to talk about. And so the reason why Lei Manzeng, the female correspondent working for the English channel of TVB, became such a household name was because when Li Peng tried to shake hands with the two journalists. Her colleague did, but she refused to shake hand with this very Chinese leader. Uh Most people put the blame on for the hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of student protesters who perished in Tiananmen Square and all around the country. She refused to shake hand with him. Wow, badass move. She did the interview, but she refused to show any gratitude or show any respect for this person. Did she have a long career after that? No, she passed away quite early, unfortunately, at the age of... 40-something. Still, that's a great story. I'd never heard of her. And then what do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? Being curious and, well, being thick-skinned is also quite necessary, I guess. Like how we went around COP25 to talk to (laughs) that person we wanted desperately to talk to. And being patient. I mean, patience pays off. And so much talk, so much attention is always given to breaking news. But for like real quality journalism, I think patience plays a very important role. Absolutely. What is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? To go even further, 
to go even further, not to be bound by comments or perceptions that other people hold against you and not to be afraid of trying something no one else tried. Especially in the context of a Hong Kong media environment, I would say people have a very I mean, you met quite a lot of Hong Kong journalists, I'm sure. And most of us have a sort of boundary or a sort of path dependency about doing things. Like we like to follow what other people are doing, what our editors used to do things. There's a very little incentive for people trying different things or people trying things in a different way. If I was younger, if I knew about it much earlier on, I would have told myself, just don't give a shit, just do things differently. Like pitch different stories, write in different formats, that sort of thing, not just... Yeah, do different stories, write in different formats, go to places no one else goes and just find your own stories. And yeah, that sort of thinking, I guess. Sure. Well, it's never too late. Maybe you'll take that and (laughs) run around Eastern Europe. (laughs) Hopefully. And then what is one thing most people don't know about you? I would say it happens sometimes when you get more familiar with some sources that you somehow start developing some kind of bond or friendship, but then the other person would still keep thinking that you're getting close to them just for the sake of news gathering, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And so it's quite difficult for some people to accept the fact that you want to be friends just because you like them personally, instead of trying to get more news from him or her. Definitely. Especially here in Brasilia, like where I would say, you know, it's a government town. There there aren't a lot of people I can be friends with who aren't also on some level sources and the people I meet are predominantly sources. So that makes total sense to me. And I do wonder, there are some people I just like and like will go get beers with. And I'm not sure what their perception is is because a couple of them yeah it's just to get drinks shoot the shit but i wonder if they think i want something out of them if you know what i mean yeah 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 absolutely i mean brussels is similar because we're also a very policy town right and so most of the friends around me i would say they could as well be my sources or they used to be my sources but somehow relationships change and they just move on to become friends and you no longer want to rely on them for news ideas or even if you do you would make sure you get their total consent and but yeah i mean it's not always easy like when you want to develop friendships with people who used to be your sources and then just two questions left what is your favorite film book tv or other media property about journalists i mean there's a very good autobiography written by the BBC's Middle East editor, Jeremy Bowen. So before he took up this position as Middle East editor, he also used to cover some war journalism stuff in the Middle East. But after one incident, he actually had to stop doing that and move back to, I think, London to do some very, well, for him, very straightforward presenting on the breakfast program for a few years before he could go back to frontline journalism again. And that retreat from war journalism happened when at one point he was covering a war. I forgot in which country, but what happened was that his cameraman got killed in an airstrike right in front of his eyes when they were filming something. And so he got understandably such a big trauma that he had to 
just totally stop doing it, stop going into war zones for many years. And in that autobiography, he actually talked about it for the first time and described what happened at the scene. And so that was a very powerful account of like life and death moment in war journalism. And I mean, I, I read it maybe four or five years ago. And so I became very touched about that account. And I also got a sense of what war journalists do and how much pressure they actually face. So that was one book I could think about. The other one is a Taiwanese writer I really like, Jay Chen. Unfortunately, she only publishes in Chinese. Funny enough, I mean, I started writing her books quite early on in my life. And for some reason, I seem to be following her footsteps in a way because she was writing for this big Taiwanese newspaper as the Europe correspondent, actually. And so she would be traveling around different parts of Europe, covering the Kosovo War, for example, and lots of interesting stuff around the continent. I never really read her news articles because it wasn't that easy to get Taiwanese newspaper when I was in Hong Kong. But I did read her books, which were like a collection of her news articles, but also the more private feelings about or private emotions about the kind of stories she followed. She wrote in beautiful Chinese and I always enjoy reading whatever she writes. And she influenced me a lot in terms of her perspective of European politics, European affairs, but also more generally about the life of a correspondent, what she did like decades ago. And she's also such a creative person because after she stopped working as a correspondent, she went back to like theatres and she, yeah, she's just very cross-cultural in a sense. Like at one point she would be so comfortable writing new stories and at other points she would be directing or performing on stage and telling stories in a different way. And I really admired her. She's one of the best writers I could have imagined in the Chinese language writing circle. What's her name again? And do you remember oh, the so name of that one? If it's in Chinese, that's fine too. She got an English name, Jade, J-A-D-E, and then Chen, C-H-E-N. Her Chinese name is Chen Yuhui. She published so many books. I mean, I couldn't even name all of them, but yeah, she's one of the best, absolutely, for me. And then last question, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist and could be anything, what job would you do? Diplomat. The thing is, we in Hong Kong do not have a diplomatic service because we are represented by China. But, well, putting politics aside, whether I feel ideologically aligned with the Chinese diplomats, leaving that alone, no Hong Kong citizen could join the Chinese diplomatic service. So we're in this situation where, on the one hand, we are represented by the Chinese diplomats, but... On the other hand, we couldn't actually join them. So anyway, so a diplomatic service is out of the question for Hong Kong people. So for people like me who is interested in a diplomatic career, is a no-go. So I was like, okay, fine. I would give up on the thought. But I guess sometimes the life of a journalist is a little similar. You've gotten pretty close. And it's probably nice not to have to toe the line. <laughs> yeah. Even, even if working for the U.S. or very open-minded countries, diplomats. It's all about the following the line. Yeah. Um, but they must know some crazy-ass shit. Like, hey. <laughs> okay, great. Well, this has been great. Thanks again Thank so much you. for coming on the podcast. I really have enjoyed it. And you just asked so many questions that, you know, I didn't really have the opportunity to think about. And that's a really interesting experience for me. Thank you. 
That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Stuart Lau, Europe correspondent for South China Morning Post. I'll post links to some of Stuart's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five-star rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you could also write out a positive review saying what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, March 8th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.